Uh, last week, I mentioned that uh, I had a, a little bit of a phobia about clowns. And immediately, I knew this was going to happen, after the service, I had several people threaten me that they were going to bring me clowns. Thank you for not bringing me clowns. I truly appreciate it. If anything, I am more threatened by steak and um, <laughs> hamburgers, uh, seafood. I am like, I'm terrified. So if you really want to scare me, uh, you know, Outback Steakhouse, gift certificates, I mean, I would cringe in absolute fear and terror over something like that. Um, just to set the record straight, that is what's scary to me, not clowns. So uh, I, I mentioned one time uh, in, in another church that I really enjoyed the chocolate-covered cherries. You know, those the sickening sweet. I mentioned one time that I liked those as a kid, and every holiday, lovely ladies in the church would buy me boxes of these chocolate-covered cherries. And Sarah, my wife, said, why couldn't you say you'd like Starbucks gift cards? Uh, you know, I can eat one of those a year, and I am totally satisfied. So to let the record show, I am terrified and scared of steak, shrimp, crab legs, all that kind of stuff. That's my, that's my most dreaded fear. Uh, we are in the book of John. Last week we saw from both Matthew, Mark, and John the story of Jesus walking on water. And this morning, we're going to continue that story in John chapter 6 and verse 22 all the way through verse 40 about Jesus talking about being the bread of life. And as we have seen from the very beginning of the book of John, Jesus presents himself and John writes the gospel and God breathes life into the gospel with this one central theme that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the overcoming God King. Nothing can take his place, and we need him to do what he's done so that we might have eternal life, that we might have a relationship with God the Father. And without Christ taking on that mantle and responsibility of being the sacrificial lamb, being the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Without Jesus taking on that sacrificial role of dying on the cross, we would not have eternal life. We would have no hope, no peace, no comfort. We would be living in constant dread and terror of death. We would have no mercy or compassion from God. We would be fending for ourselves. And if we were fending for ourselves, we are the most pitiful of all creatures, no hope of salvation whatsoever. But through Christ, our overcoming God King, the Messiah, we have hope. And this morning, he presents the case of what the feeding of the 5,000 meant. Now, the feeding of the 5,000, as we saw, were probably 30 to 40,000 people. It could be a large, large number of people that he fed that day. And they responded with wanting to make him king. They saw an amazing opportunity to take care of their physical needs. Hey, God will take care of it. Jesus will take care of it. We don't have to labor for our food. It's, it's awesome. We got it. We want to make him king. And Jesus fled from that because he knew his time was not right. He did not want to be made king that way. He was not here to meet our physical needs. He was to meet our spiritual needs. And the feeding of the 5,000 was to point people to that spiritual 
sustenance and spiritual gift that Christ gives us, but the people misunderstood it. And not only the people misunderstood it, the disciples didn't fully understand it. If you remember from last week in Mark chapter 6, I think verse 50, 42, even the disciples did not fully understand what the feeding of the 5,000 was all about. Why did he pick bread? Why did he do this? Why was it a miracle? It wasn't just simply because they were hungry and they needed food and there was no place to get it. There's a spiritual significance behind it that Jesus decides to communicate, not just to the disciples and the crowd, but to us. Now, the stage is being set in Mark, uh, excuse me, John chapter 6, verse 22 through 24. On the next day, that is the day after they had come into, uh, from the other side of the lake, Jesus in the middle of the night walks across the lake, finds Peter, they get back in the boat, and all of a sudden they're on the other side of the lake. The people are still on the other side of the lake. They haven't followed him through. And so this sets the stage. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, Jesus, for one particular reason, why? The guy just fed us, performed a miracle. He's a great teacher. He's, he's got all of it together, and he's giving us food. So they are on the lookout. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? So they're noticing the disciples left, but Jesus wasn't with them. Only 12 people got in the boat and left, and Jesus wasn't one of them. Where is he? So the next morning, everyone notices the boats are still there except one, and Jesus wasn't in that boat. They did not know at the time that in the middle of the night, he got down from the mountaintop of prayer and devotion to the Father and walked across the sea, and they were on the other side. So they were still waiting for him to come down from the mountain. The other boats from Tiberus also came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the news got around from the other side of the lake. Hey, Jesus is giving away free food. It's a miracle. How did it happen? We don't know, but it's, it's amazing. He's here. So a whole bunch of people. And this would have been done in the old-fashioned way of one person telling another person telling another person. They had no phones, no Twitter, no Instagram, no Snapchat. They had no way of communicating what was going on except by word of mouth. So the word got even across the other side of the sea, the region, that Jesus was performing miracles. So a whole bunch of people left the one side and came to where Jesus was supposed to be last, where they saw him last. How many boats? I don't know, but it was many different boats. The other boats of Ty uh, from Tiberis came along to the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That trip from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee on a day where winds were favorable could take you two to three hours. If the winds were not favorable, it could take up to six hours to get across the Sea of Galilee. So this was not just walking down the block. Is he here? No. They took effort and figured out, well, there's only two places he would be. He'd either be in this town on this side or this town on that side, main metropolises against the Sea of Galilee. So they took their bets and they said, we're going to go back over to where we first began, where we saw him the last time before he came over to this part of the sea. So they desired earnestly 
to go find him. Now, their motives may not have been pure. Their motives may have been the guy gives away free food. This is a great thing. It's a miracle. Nothing like this has ever happened in our, in our day. So let's follow him. And his teaching is starting to make an impact. Crowds are following him not just for miracles, but for the impact of what he is saying, especially how he's communicating with the religious leaders and showing that the religious leaders don't have it all together. That there is a simplicity to a relationship with God. It's not filled, filled with rules and regulations, but it's filled with a heart loving the Father. And that is what Jesus is exampling to everyone. But they had to make the trip. They had to make a trip of two hours to five hours. Some people have a hard time making a trip to church in 20 minutes. And they think to themselves, ah, 20 minutes and spend a whole hour there and they don't even sing my favorite songs, and by then probably the donuts will be gone and there'll be no coffee. 20 minutes is a long way out of our way. So I want to congratulate everyone, first of all, for coming this morning. You made a trip of probably 20 minutes at least. But seeking Jesus costs people. It costs people time. It costs people energy. It costs you the decision to get up Get dressed and be here. And people have always been seeking Jesus, sometimes on their own terms and sometimes for the terms that he lays in front of us. But that seeking Jesus takes an effort. It has always taken an effort. And God doesn't reward us for that effort with salvation. Jesus gives us salvation. But that effort in seeking him demonstrates how serious we are about it how true we are to that message that we're claiming. Do we claim that title of Christian and believer? Well, your life should look somewhat different. Your life should look and grow with maturity. Every season, there should be change and differences in our lives. There should be more of a love and compassion. We should be quicker to forgive, less quick to be angry and upset and hold a grudge or bitterness. We should be quick to seek Jesus, even if it costs us driving, even if it costs us time, even if it costs us money, even if it costs us energy, even if it costs us, here's the big one, our life. It's worth seeking after Christ. So everyone gets back into the boat, heads across the sea, and figures out Jesus must be where he started this ministry in Galilee. Up comes the next section of verses, John chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. Big section, and Jesus has a lot to say in this particular section. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they're, they're inquisitive. They know that he didn't leave the mountaintop. They know he didn't get into a boat. They're wondering, how in the world did he get here? I don't know if that'd be my first question, but it certainly would invoke in your mind. They longed to see him. They longed to be near to him. They longed maybe for the miracles, but as our hearts begin to change, they are longing for his words of eternal life. And that's proven by the title they call him Rabbi, teacher of God's word, teacher of God's communication to us. And so Jesus responds in verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly. And remember, this is that moment where it's everybody awake. 
This is vitally important. Make sure you write this down, highlight it, put it to memory. Truly, truly, this is vastly important. I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knows their heart. You can't hide the heart's condition from Jesus. You can't fool Jesus. You can fool other people, but you can't fool the creator of the universe, the Messiah, the overcoming God King, on the true reason why you're seeking him. They had a motive, and it wasn't pure. It was clear motive. You liked food. I gave you food, and you're my friend. So as long as I provide food for you, you're going to follow me and be my friend. He calls them immediately to their lack of faith, to their immature faith, to the real reason why they were following Jesus, and it was because he gave them something. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. This is a beautiful presentation of mature Christianity. The focus of your heart, your mind, your effort. And Jesus says, while it is vastly important that you do work, because you need to work, you were created for working six full days a week. You were created to earn and labor and sweat and toil that you might be able to eat, that you might have food, that you might be able to provide for your family and those in need. You are called to work. Work is not wrong or sinful. God established work before the fall in creation. He sent Adam and Eve to be gardeners and tillers of the land and take care of the animals and name them. Work is good. It's just that because of the fall, we now have thorns and and hardships, and rocks in the field, and, and rain, and drought that, that may not match with growing seasons. We have struggles with work, but Jesus sets the record straight and says, listen, while you have work, that's good and necessary, but if you devote all of your energy to work, and you don't do the things of God, you're failing. If all you do is work, 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 to get ahead, to get ahead, to get better, to get the most, to retire early, you are not doing life that God has designed for you, that he has made you for. Truly, truly, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus says, says elsewhere, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? What benefit has life been if you can accumulate all the world's treasures and it's yours and everyone acknowledges you're the king or the queen you're you're the head of everything what does it really profit you if you gained everything and yet you lose your soul of course the answer is you've gained nothing in fact you've lost everything and jesus says elsewhere Store up your treasure in heaven where the thief cannot come in and destroy or the moth can't come in and destroy. 
but set your heart, your mind, all your affections on things above. And all the other things will be given to you. All the other things will work out. You be diligent and faithful in what God has called you to do. Everything else will work out. It'll be okay. Don't focus on the material things of life. Now, that is a completely different message than what the world gives. The world gives the message, focus on everything this life has to offer you, and you better get it now before so-and-so gets it, because then it'll be gone. And then you're like, okay, I better get it. I better retire. I better have this. I better have that. I better do this. I better get this education. I better get this kind of job. I better spend my money this way. I better invest it this way. All good things to do. But if that's your focus, if that's your heart's passion, then your heart is wrong, no matter what it tells you. Our heart can be deceitful. It can mislead us and misguide us. And we can get so preoccupied with the world's standard of success that we fail to see God's standard of success. And God's standard of success is being in a right relationship with him, loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That is success. That is what you should aim for on your tombstone, a lover of God and loves the people around them. That is the best headstone you could ever have. Well, it could also be well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'll give you that one too. Two good ones. But nowhere is a Christian having success in this world when it says, had the biggest boat ever, had an amazing vacation home, had three cabins in the woods, had amazing cars, had a bank account that wouldn't quit. None of that will matter. What will matter is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the overcoming God King. And so Jesus sets the record straight. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. God has said from the very beginning, this is my beloved Son. I am well pleased in him. He is doing exactly what I've called him to do, exactly what he's meant to do, exactly what will bring you salvation. And Jesus says, I'm here to give you that eternal life. And the Father says, yes, this is the only way to heaven. This is the only way into a relationship with the Father. And people have invented hundreds, millions of ways to get a relationship with the Father. And Jesus sets the record straight. It's not through any of these other ways. I am the only way. I am the truth and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through me. And he tells us at the very beginning of this section, I am here to give it to you. You want bread? Great. The bread I'm going to give you is bread to eternal life. Not bread to fill your stomach but bread to fill and satisfy your heart. In verse 29, uh, excuse me, uh, my glasses stopped working. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They're interested in what he's saying. 
They hear about the bread of life. They hear about eternal life. They hear about the Father's pleasure with the Son, and they want it. They want that that work. They want that event. They want that to be happening in their own hearts. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what the work of God is, the most miraculous work. And this is really hard to, to, to put into... Uh, to put in a single category, what is the greatest work of God? Because you can look at nature, and all of nature mesmerizes me at how complex it is, how complete it is, how beautiful it is, and how sin has harmed that. There are mighty works that God has done. When you think of the smallest of smallest materials to the largest of largest of universes, God is amazing in the things that he's done. You look at your hand and you can marvel at how, how it works, why it works the way it does, why it was created the way it was created. The simple drink of a glass of water, how refreshing it is, how satisfying it is, how, how it meets all my needs, and God designed it that way. God put managed it, God created it, he sustains it. And he allows us pleasure from it. Holding my children for the first time, I had no words. Seeing my wife on my wedding day, I was speechless. Seeing her every day I wake up, I'm speechless at how God has created such great things that I get to experience, and we all do. And as amazing as all of that stuff is that we can experience, taste, and feel, and see, none of it measures up a single bit, a single percentage to the work that God does in showing us Jesus as our Messiah, the overcoming God King, and putting us in a relationship with him through his work. Nothing is greater. All of creation pales in comparison to the mighty establishment of faith in our hearts through Jesus Christ. That is a mighty work. That is amazing. That is soul satisfying. You want to see the works of God? You want to see miracles? You want to see signs and wonders? Witness to people. Bring them face to face with the God of Scripture and see if the Holy Spirit does not enliven them with faith. And when he does, that new birth, we are told that the angels stop what they are doing in heaven and rejoice when one sinner repents. If heaven declares the greatness of God, Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? If you want to see miracles in your life, if you want to see miracles happening in front of you, witness to your kids, witness to your parents, witness to your friends, witness to your family, witness to the stranger. See God's work mightily be used and his word come to fullness in that person's heart. And when they become saved through God's mercy and gift, it is time to rejoice because God has done the greatest of works and miracles by bringing a dead, sinful heart out of selfishness and pride and translated them to the heaven of holiness and purity 
and love and grace. And when we see grace happen, when we get to taste and see that grace event occurring, it is miraculous. And Jesus says, you want to know the greatest of all works is when a sinner repents and comes to saving faith. That is miraculous. And the world says, ah, oh, no, 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 I can't really see that. You know, I, you know, a change in a sinner's heart, it's hard to see. It's hard to qualify and quantify. I really don't know if it happened. It could just be an emotional response. I, I, I can't see it. I want the bread. I want to see you walk on water. I want to see you raise the dead again or heal the sick. I want to see big things. He says, I'll show you the biggest thing. When one comes to repentance, everything else that God has shown us in his handiwork all took place by the word of his power. He spoke and it came into existence. All six days of creation resting on the seventh. He spoke and it was. Let there be light and there was. Let there be life and there was. Let there be this and there was. But this work, the work that he, Jesus is describing, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent, isn't done by God's word. It's done by Jesus sacrificing himself in your stead, in the place of the sinner, shedding his blood that the sinner might be saved. It wasn't just simply... I, I forgive them. He said, I'm going to forgive them, but I have to pay the penalty of their sin, of their disobedience, of their hardness of heart and their pride and their arrogance and their anger and their bitterness, their unforgiveness. I have to deal with this, and I just cannot wave my hand and say, be gone, because it strikes against my holiness and it's still there, and the only way to remove it is to cleanse it through a sacrifice, either your own or his, the substitute. And your sacrifice, no matter how much you think it's costing you, is already stained by sin. Whereas Christ's sacrifice is not stained by sin. He never sinned. He was sinless, holy, perfect. That is the miracle of miracles and the wonder of wonders and the grandness and greatest of all of God's work that he can save us. Anyone who calls upon his name, anyone who cries out, Father, forgive me. Father, restore me. Father, help me. Anyone who cries that out, God is willing and able to forgive. He then continues to the very last section, or this, the, the next four verses in the section. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread to eat. So they're making a connection, this bread and life and a miracle happening is a lot like what happened with Moses when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and God rained manna down upon them six days out of seven, holding the sixth day worth of bread for the seventh day. That was a miracle. Show us that. 
Have you ever seen people that are so dumb and stubborn before? Jesus has already told them what the miracle is, is that you believe me. And they go, I got it. Miracle, great. Can we have more bread? Prove it to us. And we're like, really? Enough with the bread. It's not about eating your fill of bread. It's not about having your physical needs met. He's speaking spiritually. And we look back at this and go, I, I cannot believe that people are this dense when faced with God's word. And it's not just reading God's word and try to understand it. He's speaking to them, and they're not getting it. We, of course, would never be so dense, would we? When we read God's word and understand it and see its clarity, we automatically believe it and follow it, right? No, <laughs> we are a lot like them. Jesus says, okay, the bread is what I'm talking about. It's me, and um, this is the real work of God that you believe me. And God has set his seal upon me. I'm the message. Believe me. That's the miracle. Can we have bread? Whatever. So he says to them, verse 32, truly, truly, again, this is vitally important. Write it down, highlight it. This is meaningful. This carries weight and authority and importance. Pay attention. All eyes front, hands folded, ears open. He says, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Was Jesus talking about bread? No. What was he talking about? Himself. He's talking about himself. And he, first of all, corrects the notion, yeah, I know who Moses is. I know exactly who Moses is. It wasn't Moses' power that gave you bread. It was my Father in heaven. And guess what? My Father is giving you something greater than the manna in the wilderness, something greater than what Moses did. It's me. I'm here. That reminds me. Can we have bread? Yeah, I want more of the bread. And give it to me all the time. Now, once isn't enough. I want it every day. Oh, my. There was a saying in school that my teachers would recite often that there is no such thing as a dumb question. There is. I've heard from my kids. I've heard it from adults. <laughs> He's not talking about meeting their physical needs. He's talking about their greatest need imaginable, their heart. He wants their heart right. And he's able to do it, he's willing to do it, and he will freely do it. You have to do nothing. You have to do nothing to earn his merit and his favor. You can't. Outside of a relationship with him, you're still his enemy. You're a foreigner to the relationship. Jesus will bring you into that relationship and forgive your sins and establish you in his kingdom. But men 
are so enamored with this world, with what we have and what we don't have, that mankind cannot, will not, see the spiritual needs they have. They'd rather look at their bank account and say, this is what I don't have. Or look at their health and say, this is what I can't do. Or look at their relationships and say, I don't have this. And they focus upon things that are temporary instead of the thing that God has called them to, which is eternal. His relationship with you and your relationship with him. Then he comes on to the very last section, verse 35 through verse 40. And I mean, this whole chapter is a section, but we're only doing through verse uh, uh, 40 today. Verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, because they just answered, can we have this bread always? Jesus said to them, with clarity again, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now he's using terms of hunger and thirst, but he's not talking about bread and water. Just like he was talking to the lady at the well, he's not talking about Water, he's talking about living water. He's talking about life-giving water to the soul, not just to quench the thirst. And it's filling your need of bread, not just physically, but spiritually. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will no longer hunger, you will no longer thirst, you will be satisfied. You will be at peace with the Father. And the Father will be at peace with you, and then you can establish peaceful relationships with your most hated enemies, because you are now able to forgive. You are now able to show mercy and compassion because my Father has showed mercy and compassion on you. You want to be satisfied with what you really need? It's not bread or water or money or more vacation time. It's Jesus. And Jesus presents himself as the one who can satisfy the soul. But I say to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He, they see him, they hear him, they can touch him. They can get right up close to him. They can ask him questions and he responds and they're not getting it. They're fixated on their hungry stomach and thirsty quench. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. <laughs> I could have multiple sermons on that very text. The comfort it brings, the assurance it brings, the efficacy of God's salvation is clear. When God brings someone to eternal life, that person loves that eternal life, and Jesus says, I will have you forever. You are in my hands. You cannot slip through. You cannot leave the presence of God. It is eternal when I bring you into my household. When I adopt you, you are adopted. I will not cast you out one bit. The promise and assurance there and clarity and certainty there is beautiful. Verse 38 through the end. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. So this is Jesus' task. 
When the father said, I need a people to be saved, and Jesus says, I'll do that entire work for you, father. This is what he's supposed to do. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen? Amen. What work our Savior does on our behalf. But the question is, people can say anything they want. The proof is, can he do it? Can Jesus save you can he save you you are an open book to him can he save that person in your mind oh they'll never come to Christ they're too far gone can he actually forgive them and bring them into a relationship with him I believe the answer is absolutely yes but can he fulfill his promise on the last day raise them from the dead. Can he fulfill that promise to you that he will raise you from the dead? Absolutely. I have no reason whatsoever to doubt that he is willing and able. He's communicated it to us from the beginning of time in these words, he is able. And that brings me to just my last question. How then do I follow Jesus? How then do I know how to believe, how to look to him, how to come to him? And it's not rocket science. There isn't a prescribed method set down in Scripture, do this, this, and this, and you've come to Christ. It is as simple and as profound as trusting and believing his word and acknowledging, Father, without you and your Son, I can do nothing. Forgive me. It's that quick, that simple, that uneventful of words. Forgive me, Father. I've sinned against you. Save me. And he answers every one of those prayers and petitions. Truly, truly, I will lose none of you. Truly, truly, I will raise you up. Truly, truly, if you come to me, you will no longer hunger or thirst in your soul. I will satisfy you. Amen? Amen? Amen. As the band comes up and sings our last anthem, I want you to sing this out with joy and gusto and excitement because this is a song that I believe that we're going to be singing in eternity. Our Lamb is worthy to be praised. Let's stand and sing.